Welcome to the podcast of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. We are delighted to have Sarah Arthur today as our guest on this episode in our recent series of women authors. Sarah is a freelance writer, consultant, and speaker. She holds a BA from Wheaton College in English and Intercultural Christian Education, as well as a Master's in Theological Studies from Duke University Divinity School. Sarah has served in full-time and volunteer youth ministry for over 20 years, and when she isn't chasing her two small boys around the house, she can be found reading and writing young adult fiction. So welcome, Sarah. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Sure. Well, the biggest thing to know is that I'm a geek about books, particularly fiction. So my whole background has been mostly studying English and being super geeky, wanting to be a writer. And then I had this weird blip after college where I was a youth director for like seven years, which anyone who knew me at the time was like, why? And um, some of it was I had studied um, Christian education and formation and Bible and theology. And I think some of it too, is I had recently been a teenager. So that was like, I was like way qualified in the minds of this particular church. So for seven years, I did that and learned how to not just speak in librarian voice, but to be like, all right, in order to play paintball, I need like all the permission forms and, and just got along with confirmation kids in particular really, really well. I just was really passionate about that particular part of their journey at a big Methodist church where I worked. So years later, started writing curriculum, mostly like for Cooksbury and the United Methodist Publishing House related to youth ministry, began to actually train other youth workers. And then when my husband sensed a call to ministry, pastoral ministry, and he went off to Duke, uh, I went off to Duke as well. So I have a master's in theological studies from Duke University Divinity School, where I did my thesis on youth confirmation which by that point didn't surprise anybody. So (laughs) I retain my love for working with teenagers and watching them grow and get excited about faith and scripture and church. So I continue to head up the, as a volunteer to coordinate the youth ministry at our church here in Lansing. My husband's a Methodist pastor. We're at Sycamore Creek Church, which is a church plant that has a focus on people who are curious about faith, but really are not churchy. So that's where we are, despite the fact that a lot of my work in youth ministry is on the power of liturgy, <laughs> like traditional yeah. forms of worship um, to be formative in kids' lives. Here we are in this really contemporary church plant. And I just still get to the privilege of watching kids grow. Um, my real passion is actually writing fiction. So middle grade and young adult fiction and after... The first book that I published was a devotional book about the Lord of the Rings for teenagers. So still that intersection of faith and literature, but with a sort of formative emphasis, like how do stories actually change us? How do they actually form us spiritually to love certain things, to pursue certain certain things, to um, even be d- develop certain virtues in Christian practices? So that's me. <laughs> 
So seven years of middle school ministry. Yeah, then, middle school and high school. And yeah, high school as well. Okay. Together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe I've blocked the high schoolers out of my, <laughs> my memory. Uh, but with a particular passion for basically sixth, seventh, and eighth graders um, in the confirmation process. Yeah. Yeah, that Ooh. takes a special gift. My my husband is also in youth ministry, so yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Home, Monday nights are our middle school, and uh, he comes home. Yeah fairly wiped out so uh-huh oh yeah Sunday nights is that way for us too nice um, my husband does the whole morning like intensely and then and then at about four o'clock I'm like all right well I'll see you later <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back after dropping off I don't know half a dozen kids so yeah so then so then recently this past year you wrote a book about Madeline Langle so what did yeah tell us what uh drew you to madeline's writing and then what led you to writing uh the book a light so lovely um yeah so part of my geekiness about loving books meant that i read just everything i could get my hands on by people of faith who um seem to have real respect for the craft of writing and madeline is one of those so i didn't actually read a wrinkle in time which is her best known book it came out in 1962 and won the newberry in 1963 and i didn't i was sci-fi wasn't my thing so i read some of the austin family chronicles and was just really wanted to be vicky austin basically <laughs> a lot when i was a you know junior high and then when I got to college, I had a college roommate, Chloe, who introduced me to Madeline's nonfiction. So mm -hmm. I read um, Walking on Water, which is her sort of signature work for people of faith who are involved in the arts. And The Rock That Is Higher came out while I was in college. And that's basically just a, makes the case for story as one of the primary vehicles for truth. And and the ways that the Holy Spirit uses stories to deliver God's truth to us. So, yeah, I was, and eventually read A Wrinkle in Time and some of her other novels. But last summer I was approached by Zondervan and they pitched the idea to me of a celebration of Madeline's spiritual legacy, um, not only kind of charting her own spiritual journey, but the ways that she influenced other people in their faith. Mm -hmm. um, so that was fun. It was really fun to, it wasn't my idea, but once they okay. came to me, I was like, oh, yes, this is what I want to do. Um, but it was a quick turnaround because of course, this is the year of Madeline, right? So mm -hmm. Wrinkle in Time movie came out in March, big blockbuster Disney movie. And then her uh, 100th birthday would be this November. Oh, okay. So there are re-releases of a lot of her books, including um, The Rock That Is Higher, Penguins and Golden Calves, um, Madeline Langle herself, which is a collection of her writings about writing. Um, and just so, yeah, it's just kind of an ongoing party. Excellent. I didn't know that her 100th birthday was coming up. So that adds yeah. to the excitement. Well, um, and she she died in 2007, but she loved birthdays. So anyone who knows her is like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we got to we got to celebrate her. So absolutely. Yeah. So then tell us about the title of the book and where it came from. Um, yeah, A Light So Lovely comes from a quote that's actually in Walking on Water, where she says, um, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting 
what they believe by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Um, and that was, uh, it, I think it was Stephanie Smith, who was the editor at Zondervan, who was like, what about this title? And as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, yes, that's <laughs> that's what the title needs to be. In some ways, it's sort of, it's a little over the top, but it's also just totally Madeline. Because um, mm-hmm. that really was the heart of what she was about. She wanted people to see the light of Christ and be drawn to it um, rather than argued into encounters with God. Yeah. And you talked earlier a little bit about story and how story can be formational. Um, And in your book, you also write about um, sort of story versus information as you share about, um, I think it was with your youth ministry, reading books with the, with the students rather than Mm -hmm. just sort of beating them over the head with uh, pamphlets about catechism maybe, or, substance abuse or whatever it was that, um, you know, parents thought, thought that their children needed and instead you read stories with them. So tell a little bit about, um, oh, actually here's a quote that's, uh, from the rock that is higher that you quote in the book. Why does anybody tell a story? It does indeed have something to do with faith, faith that the universe has meaning that our little human lives are not irrelevant that what we choose or say or do matters, matters cosmically. Can you say more about this idea of communicating through story versus just presenting information? And what implications do you think this might have for women in the academic setting? Since that's most of our audience will be women in in academia. Yeah, yeah. One of the best essays on this that anyone could read in which Madeline tackles this topic is an essay about George MacDonald in a book called Reality and Vision. Um, it was reprinted in a, in a, that same collection was redone again and called um, More Than Words. And if you can track that book down, it was edited by Philip Yancey. Um, she was colleagues with a bunch of people in what was called the Chris System Society. Um, people mm-hmm. like Eugene Peterson and Calvin Miller and Lucy Shaw and um, Richard Foster were all part of a group of writers that supported each other um, and met together for retreats and things. And they would do these collections. And she talks about the role that the works of George MacDonald played in her life as a child. So she was very lonely um, growing up after World War I in New York City. Her parents were artists and musicians and writer. Her father was a writer himself. He reviewed opera. And so they would, her parents would leave like right as she was, you know, getting ready to have dinner or go to bed. And um, they wouldn't come back till all hours and then they'd sleep Mm -hmm. in. So she was pretty lonely and she read. Books were her companions. And she talks about how, um, particularly with the works of George MacDonald, who was a Victorian Presbyterian minister who wrote books like At the Back of the North Wind um, and The Princess and the Goblin and lots of fairy tales and romances and she found in his work that without, uh, it sort of took her to church, if you will. Like he, mm. he was able to deliver an understanding, not only of um, a loving kind of father, like if we call God father, this was like the best possible, most loving kind of father. Um, 
And then yet these strong and amazing women. Um, the North Wind is female. She has this crazy hair and the main character goes on rides with her as she like storms over the Atlantic, you know, and like, like she's this uh, very much of the Holy Spirit kind of figure. Mm-hmm. So Madeline had a sense of this sort of varied um, our theological concepts of God that you couldn't necessarily put, she wouldn't have been able to put into doctrinal statements as a child, but that she still deeply understood the loving, the loving nature of God for each particular human life. And that's, so what you find in an example like that, and this was true in my own childhood, is the power of story to deliver truth through the back door of the imagination. Hmm. When the front door of reason and the intellect has all these roadblocks and locks on it and resistance to it through the back door of the imagination is that door is wide open and the Holy Spirit can come in and bring um, sort of understandings or experiences of God that are beyond what we can put into words and yet still deliver that experience of the numinous, that God is other, that God is loving, um, that God is forgiving. These are things that story can deliver. And it's not to say that we don't need the reason and the intellect. I mean, there's a reason why we have theological concepts distilled down into these shorthand statements. But there's a difference between secondary experience of God and primary experience of God. And narrative is primary. Um, it's like liturgy. It's like sacrament. Um, it's why so much of the Bible and the stories of God's interactions with people are delivered through narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, this is primary discourse and theology and doctrine. And even what we do in confirmation sometimes with students is secondary. So primary Christian practices and secondary discourse need to work hand in hand. And the more we can immerse our students and our congregations in primary Christian practices, the more that secondary discourse has to work with. Um, and that just that's just the basic sort of underlying theme in a lot of ways of, of uh, the book about Madeline's spiritual legacy. Because she, um, she wrote fiction for kids and for grownups, um, but then she also did these sort of weird, like midrashic commentary on Genesis. <laughs> like, right. You the know, Genesis she did, the Genesis trilogy, she did a lot of that, um, as well as sort of was an apologist for the arts, uh, trying to explain why the imagination mm-hmm. works the way it does and why narrative can be formative. And then, uh, so the second part of that question, because I think I asked two questions at once. Oh is, yeah, I probably um, that's okay. Yeah, I asked a lot. Um, what implications then do you think um, that that idea that of narrative versus you know reasoning? Well, not it's not necessarily versus, right? It's the two parts. It's the pair. Um, yeah, paired together. What, what are implications for yeah, the for women, women in mm-hmm. leadership and teaching and preaching? Um, or even um, women in, in, the, in higher education. In higher education, right. Um, well, I think giving primacy of place to um, people's stories. So let's say um, we're in a meeting and we have to sort of guide a group of people in decision-making. We have to guide them in casting vision uh, for where a department or a group is headed next. 
And, and one of the pieces that we often miss is the sort of turn to somebody next to you and share about the first time a work of art really struck you or to share about if it's a meeting about um, maybe changing up curriculum or something. When was, when was a time when you were a student and, and a teacher, like something about the way they taught just impacted your life and why was that and then just hear back from the from each other and let the starting point not be the crisis or the you know whatever it is that's prompting this meeting any kind of agenda but the starting point be your shared experience on the ground of why this matters right and it's not to say that those stories become the barometer of what's going to happen next. It sets the tone for saying that that all of our questions that we're seeking to answer come out of lived experience on the ground. And the way that we share about that experience is through the stories that we tell. And I think the same can be true in a, in a teaching setting um, from the pulpit, uh, that, the, that we give people that sort of primary practice first, mm-hmm before we step back and, and look at it um, more uh, intellectually. And it's not to say that the imagination isn't part of the intellect, but it, we don't always use it as the starting point. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, sort of relatedly, at one point in the book, you share a handful of stories from people whose faith was renewed or even rescued um, by Madeline's writing. Yeah. Um, and you, you wrote, The more stories like these that I hear, the more I'm convinced that Madeline's mission was an apologist to the wavering, the wounded, the wondering, was a resounding success. She has helped many of us cling to faith when our basic worldview is being challenged by our own universe disturbing questions. She has encouraged us to rethink our theological assumptions about what is safe versus what is sacred. Can you share more about sort of that experience of hearing from people about their stories of how her writing connected with them and even what what you mean by that last part uh, about encouraging us to rethink our theological assumptions about what is safe versus what is sacred? Yeah, well, the I did hear so many stories about people. A lot of the stories that I heard from people from my generation, so growing up in the 80s and 90s, when there began to be this sort of bifurcation or like this really strong, strongly identified subculture of more conservative evangelicalism that had its own music and books and apparel. (laughs) And, um, you know, like it was a pretty powerful market, right? And, And its own began to have its own sort of political clout. And a lot of this the people I talked to growing up in as that division happened more and more away from engagement with culture found that really uh, it was, there's this significant disconnect for them between, you know, their community saying that God cannot be limited. We can't limit God. God is all powerful, et cetera, between that sort of statement. And then, this idea that, oh, but there are things that God can't use 
you know, there, there's music that God, that's not God's, there's books that aren't God's, there's the, all these things mm-hmm. that are not safe, right? And so the division became, and Sarah Zar articulates this really well in the new forward to um, Walking on Water. She's a YA novelist. She says, like, what she heard a lot of was that you have, you have secular became the thing to be afraid of. And because it wasn't safe, so or clean or something, it was like it was as if the word sacred was not the alternative to secular. The alternative to secular was things that were somehow safe or clean, and how unsupportable that is. Like you can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't read the Book of Judges. Then you know. So like, how do you, how do you make a way forward? And then then how do you also say, but this book I love by somebody who. I don't know anything about their faith. Like what? Mm. So is this for a lot of people who are artists and writers now, Madeline was the one who, who helped them bridge that divide by saying, uh, first of all, let's stop telling the world what God can't do. He's, he's God is so generous. I mean, he gives the sun set to everybody. It doesn't matter if somebody is an, it, you know, the most articulate and obnoxious atheist you've ever met, that person still gets a sunset. So God can give out artistic talent and beauty and wisdom to, to anybody. God's unscrupulous. And, mm-hmm. and who's to say that, um, that it's not God at work in their lives when they've created this thing that we otherwise would call sacred, uh, secular. So she really, especially in walking on water challenged that kind of sort of narrow binary thinking about what belongs to God and what doesn't belong to God. And she also pushed back against the idea that just because you're Christian, she, she was like, just because you're Christian doesn't give you a pass. Uh, mm-hmm. As a writer, as an artist, as a teacher, as anybody, um, as a person who gets up as a public speaker, um, you don't get a pass. You still have to be excellent. In fact, you should be more excellent at what you do. And so she really had a hard time with the idea of sort of like Christian writers who write for Christian publishing houses, <laughs> particularly. Um, and I don't believe she ever published any fiction with a Christian publishing house. I think that was mostly her nonfiction. So, yeah. So, so these were the kinds of things that people who were on the brink of walking away from Christianity altogether because they felt they were at this crossroads. Like I can be either either be an artist or a Christian, Mm. but the community I grew up in is not going to let me be both. And Madeline said, Nope, that's no, you are called to this. This is God's work in you. Yeah, and she certainly um, rocked the boat quite a bit, right, in the sense of, in would you say in the Christian world? Um, I know there were a lot of people, right, maybe particularly men that, that said she was heretical and things like that. Oh, when, men and women. Oh, yeah. Men. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the pushback against her became really strident in the the 90s for some reason. I mean, Wrinkle in Time came out in 1962 and here, you know, decades later, it was became one of the banned books, you know, of all time, the most banned books of all time. And I think a lot of it had to do with, um, she was not interested in signaling to other Christians that she was saved or even safe. She wasn't 
she wasn't raised in more conservative circles. And so she didn't use those, that grammar. She didn't mm-hmm. use those tropes. She wasn't interested in signaling to her fellow Christians what they were wanting to hear. Mm-hmm. And I think at first she did that a little naively. Like she just assumed like, oh, of course I'll use uh, a crystal ball in this chapter. And that, you know, everyone will understand that it's kind of a joke. <laughs> But there are lots of people of faith who, um, with zero sense of humor, didn't find that funny at all um, and thought that, you know, she was into witchcraft and new age philosophy. So that just was like wild to her and, and hurtful. But just because she then became aware that she was kind of breaking all kinds of rules for what Christians, more conservative Christians expected, she wasn't going to let that hold her hostage to what kinds of art she produced and what her stories needed to say and how they were going to say it. So she just kept on. (laughs) She just kept on with characters who were mind readers and who could travel through time and space. And it was like, um, why do we tell the world what God can't do? Maybe some people can read minds. (laughs) Jesus could, you know, maybe that's a gift he gives to people. Oh, Yeah, she was not prepared for the backlash, and it did really hurt her a lot. Mm -hmm. Really, and that's was that something that you didn't know about her before? Uh, Sort of the, I think I've heard a lot about sort of the backlash she received, but never the piece about how hurtful it was for her. Um, Was that something in your research of her life that you discovered? And with that, was there anything else that was surprising to you about her? Um. Well, she had a very sort of assertive personality. She was kind of relentless. And so the idea that anything could hurt her, um, you know, you think of her, this is, this is your writing model, right? She's the, she's the idol and, and you think she's, she probably handled that all with just water off a duck's back. Um, so yeah, I was a little surprised by how hurtful all of that was to her. But then I thought, well, of course it is. Um, she had had a lot of rejection from the New York publishing houses with a wrinkle in time up front before anybody accepted it for publication because it was so religious and because it dealt very blatantly with evil. And so here she, you know, was sort of fighting against prejudices in that end of, of her life. And so when then she began to interact with Christians more and more, she would feel at home at places like Wheaton College, which is my alma mater. And she says in a commencement address in 1977, you know, this is, I feel home here because I'm a Christian among Christians. So imagine how hurtful it would be then to get the kind of pushback that she got. And that did surprise me. Another thing that surprised me was um, I interviewed a lot of people, lots of people. It was a lot of fun. People who knew her quite well, including her friend Lucy Shaw, who is herself a writer and poet. They were friends for a long time. And also Madeline's granddaughter, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte jones Wakeless is the executor of the Lengel Estate. And she's sort of the public face of the, of the Lingle estate. And she talked about how hurtful some of Madeline's sort of loose handling of facts, like stories that she would tell about the family where it was either like, mom, what are you talking about? Or mm-hmm. that was not how they remembered it. It was either totally invented or it wasn't how they remembered it. And so that was a big surprise to me was learning that not everything in her memoirs, you can take at face value. Um, her family 
might have some things to say about that. <laughs> um, and also how hurtful at times it was for, to see themselves fictionalized in her novels mm-hmm. and recognize themselves and not a very flattering picture or a just mishandling of their character to the point of being like feeling like there was damage being done to who they are. So, um, so Charlotte was a really good barometer for me of what kinds of things to go after with those stories okay, um, and how to do that lovingly while respecting Madeline, not letting her be an idol, but um, letting her be a complex human mm-hmm. being. So, yeah. Great. Well, um, our audience is mostly women in academia in many different stages of life. Some grad students in their early 20s, some single, some married, some working toward their PhDs while simultaneously raising a family. Would you have any recommendations of Madeline's writings uh, for any of the women in those stages? Yeah, so time and time again, as I interviewed people like Sarah Bessie and D.L. Mayfield and a number of other women writers in particular, um, the book A Circle of Quiet has mm-hmm. has come up so many times. And it's she it's a memoir-esque <laughs> book about the decade that she was raising young children. She and her husband Hugh were running a business in rural Connecticut. They had moved from New York City to a farmhouse and um, Madeline was continuing to try to publish and she was getting a lot of rejections. And it, it tells about how hard that was and yet how um, she persisted in the sense that this is what she was made to do was to be a writer despite all these rejections, despite the sense that that maybe she would never publish anything again. It would just be diapers all the time forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so many women authors I spoke with, um, that was just a really, a really powerful book for them. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyone who has sort of paired their vocation of teaching or um, preaching with the arts needs to read Walking on Water. That would be the other one that I would suggest. Okay, yeah. Yeah, powerful defense of spiritual vocation and not being apologetic about what you're called to do. Yeah, I think uh, Circle of Quiet was the first book of hers that I ever read. And oh, I was yeah. I was in my early 20s, so I didn't maybe resonate with the parts about <laughs> raising children, but yeah. particularly yeah. like the parts where she would go and um, and sit next to a tree and have mm-hmm. a picture of an icon. I mean, it's been so many years. Yeah, since. yeah good memory. Yes. Um, and then I yeah. think the other one that, that was meaningful to me was uh, The Summer of the Great Grandmother. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, um, you know, I haven't lost my mother yet, but uh, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. themes of grief and, and sort of loss and, and working through those things um, yeah. was meaningful as well. So I wonder mm-hmm. even if, uh, in addition to Walking on Water, just those, what is it called? The Crosswick series? Right? Yeah, the Crosswick's journals. And the Summer of the Great Grandmother actually would be really good for anybody involved in pastoral care because what Madeline allows readers to do is get mad at God. Mm-hmm. And she would often say she interacted with a lot of sort of her fans who would say that was the first time anyone gave me permission to be mad at God. Madeline was angry at the decline of her mother into dementia. She was angry. Um, and she was just really upfront about that in that book. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just really powerful. Going back to uh, Madeline's uh, memoirs, uh, she talks a little bit about her own 
personal spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that she kept. And as you were doing research, were there any of any of her own spiritual practices that sort of intrigued you or stood out to you or, or were things you wanted to uh, integrate into your own life? Yeah, the... Um actually coming up on, we were doing the Madeline podcast as a celebration of her centennial. And so it's just like some of the interviews I did with people for the book and her longtime housemate, Barbara Braver, I realized I had started that interview with that question specifically. Like, what did you watch Madeline doing? So it was really fun for to hear her say things like, um, they, they prayed Compline every night together. Um, which Madeline talks about in her books. And I knew that, but it didn't occur to me that, of course, if you were in a household or practicing hospitality like Madeline did to Barbara, she opened up her home for Barbara to stay when Barbara came into New York to work three days a week, you know, that they, you would pray together. Like, mm-hmm. duh. <laughs> um, and, and my husband and I have done that when living in intentional Christian community and have done that with each other, but it's never occurred to me that like if friends from church were over for dinner, that at nine o'clock we would say, well, one of the things we do, uh, is we pray Compline. So join us, you know, before you leave for the night, like, well, duh, why wouldn't you do that? Because it's awkward, but Hey, um, Madeline didn't care about that. So if you were with Madeline, and it was evening, you would pray Compline with her, you know, her dinner guests or whoever. So I was really struck by that being a communal practice in that, that you may do in your personal life, but that whenever anyone's there is also a communal practice. Um, I just thought that was beautiful. And um, her mother was a pianist, um, trained pianist who sometimes would accompany the Met opera singers as they were warming up for practices. (laughs) So piano was a big part of Madeline's life. She really loved the Bach fugues. And while I was doing the Madeline book, I thought, you know, that's a, that's something I've lost is just practicing piano. And for my children to hear music in their home growing up became a really important sort of part of, of this book. And you may not think of that as a spiritual practice, but but it is in the sense that you're allowing your sort of subconscious mind to for things to sort of surface while you're engaged in music or art or whatever it is um, that isn't your like on your assigned task of things to do. Mm-hmm. And and she found that the practicing the Bach fugues was very similar to prayer for her, um, that there was a sort of order, almost like liturgy for her. There was a kind of order to it. And the more she did it, there were days she didn't want to practice piano and days she didn't want to pray. Mm -hmm. Um, But she continued in in doing those anyway, that if we think of that, the more we engage in artistic practices, the more they sort of teach us about how spiritual practices work through repetition, whether we like it or not, you know, uh, whether we feel like doing them or not. And by work, I mean, they don't sort of magically conjure up the Holy Spirit, but they, you know, in Madeline, Madeline's way of expressing is that, that they sort of build up kind of spiritual muscle or give us a sort of foundation so that when we cannot find the words to pray, we still fall back on those things we've been practicing. Yeah, that makes sense that doing it over and over again. And then when you're, it just becomes natural to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Lucy Shaw said that when she went to visit Madeline in the last few weeks of Madeline's life in the nursing home, Madeline couldn't really, wasn't really present to her and Barbara Braver. Um, They went together to see her. But when they started to pray, um, the familiar words of the liturgy, uh, Madeline joined in. So um, there was something really powerful that, that their that bridged even um, the brokenness of the mind at that stage in Madeline's decline. And it allowed them to have a measure of their friendship back in a way. Hmm. Then for your own life, are there any spiritual practices um, that you have been using to strengthen your faith more recently? Yeah, I think that the, Allowing myself to pray maybe more childlike prayers or very simple, not very wordy prayers has been important. You know, we haven't talked in this podcast so far about my diagnosis of breast cancer. Six hours after I turned in revisions for A Light So Lovely, the book about Madeline, I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. And um, and the words like the... Um, the words of the liturgy for evening prayer have been really powerful for me, but I'm not always able to remember all of those like in the middle right. of the day. Um, and so sometimes it's just the prayer to Lord have mercy um, mm-hmm. and to allow that to be enough, you know, or when my little boy says to me, mommy help, that's a, me reaching out to God that way is also a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I think allowing myself to not be the wordy nerdy intellectual, you know, who's got, who has all the words, <laughs> all the words right, um, is, has been really freeing. Uh, Cause cancer takes you to a place where um, you don't have the words. So that so a simple prayer for help or for mercy has been really powerful. Thank you for sharing that with us and with our listeners. So I know yeah. that's not an easy thing um, to go through. Mm-hmm. Also mixed with the mixed with the joy of writing this incredible book. Um, but yeah, not one is lots of words, right? And the other one, there are no words yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good contrast. Well, and, and to conclude, um, we've been trying to, to end all of our podcasts by asking our, all our guests the same question, um, which is connected again to words. Um, but what verse or quote or other set of words has been a source of meaning or hope um, or a strengthening of your faith for you lately? Uh, well, a phrase that comes up in Madeline's writing over and over again, um, is from Julian of Norwich and all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And she repeats it in the circle of quiet and in the rock that is higher. And she goes through many, many, um, difficult experiences in her life where that theme comes back and she reiterates it 
Oh gosh, dozens of times. And as I was writing my book about her, I was like, oh yes, what a great thing to circle back to, you know, for the final chapter. And, you know, we're going to test her well, which is something that uh, (laughs) she talks about in The Wrinkle in Time, you know, and, and, um, and then I got this cancer diagnosis and it's like, but what if we don't test her well? Mm -hmm. Um, What if I turn into mean mommy on a chemo day? You know, sure. and what what my boys remember of this experience is that mommy didn't have the energy to um, to listen to their fortieth reiteration of um, the story that they've told me before, and or deal with their resistance to bath time graciously, and mm-hmm. it, it like that my worth or my sort of sense of who I am is not dependent on on everything being well. I think that that's been, so it's like the anti-quote. <laughs> it's like me reckoning with like, now is this just me being Pollyanna, like wanting a happy ending or and trying to manipulate everything towards that happy ending? Like I am now the wise woman. I've reached this point in my career where like Madeline, I can dispense wisdom and be all this that people need me to be. Or as Madeline's granddaughter, Charlotte pointed out, like, what if the, the fact that you're failing in this moment to be everything you thought, what if that's still part of the story somehow? And that the narrative arc does not have to, uh, that, that it doesn't just end with us being amazing. <laughs> right. The successful mom, the successful wife, the successful teacher, student, you know, preacher. And in, and maybe that's why we need Jesus, because we can't be, we're not going to test her well. <laughs> like, <laughs> things will not always be well, and that's why uh, it it just once again points to Christ and not mm-hmm. to me. It points to a light that is beyond me, not to me myself. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and. Yeah. And your words. And I obviously have lots of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're really grateful um, that you took the time to talk with us and and share about um, spiritual practices and your own strengthening of faith. And of course, about Madeline and your time researching her and studying her and learning from her. You just heard from Sarah Arthur, author of A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Langle. For more information on Sarah and her writing, she can be found at saraharthur.info. Thank you for listening to IntraVarsity's podcast for women in the academy and professions. Women in the Academy and Professions is a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We'd love to hear your feedback. To offer it or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections that we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.